You're listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Okay, welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. This is our first episode of our second season. I am your host, Dr. Lee Johnson, and I'm excited to announce that we have two brand new co-hosts for season two, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. I'm going to give them just a chance to introduce themselves. So, Rick, you want to go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. First of all, I'm incredibly excited to join both of you. This is going to be a lot of fun, I hope. I teach philosophy at DePaul University, and I work mostly in medieval philosophy and critical theory, Frankfurt School mostly. Marx and Medieval. Awesome. And Charles, how about you? Hi, I'm extremely excited and happy and honored to be here. I am an associate professor of Africana Studies at Oberlin College. Woohoo! I teach <laughs> uh, Africana philosophy, political and cultural theory and aesthetics in particular. I'm a SUNY Binghamton grad. I was in the philosophy, interpretation and culture program, which no longer exists. So that's kind of a downer. But I'm excited about being here and looking forward to some great conversations. All right. Well, I am super excited to have you both. And we've got a bucket of topics to talk about already this season. So uh, I'm looking forward to jumping right in. So last season, we introduced ourselves by getting everybody's drink order because this is hotel bar session. So we're all sitting down here at the hotel bar at the end of a conference day to chop it up. But this season, I'm going to ask you what your drink order is, and I'm going to give each of you a chance to give me a rant and a rave, something that you're ranting about this week and something that you're raving about this week. So, Charles, what's your order and what's your rant and rave? I think I'm going to go with the Rye Manhattan because this hotel bar is so air-conditioned and just the right (laughs) level of murky that I'm really appreciating that. (laughs) So my rant is Josh Hawley. Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, who is such a moron, and his floor speech the other day about critical race theory, which drove me insane. Really? This isn't a nation based in racism? I'm sorry. It's a slave society with literally slavery written into the Constitution. But no, it's not. So that's my, my rant. Josh Hawley, just a moron and an intentional moron. My rave is it's Black Music Month, the month of June, and I've been listening to so much Prince. I am knee deep in Prince. I'm listening to streaming services. I'm pulling out old CDs. I'm listening to anything that Questlove has to say about Prince. I'm raving to the light fantastic for Prince. That's awesome. All right, uh, Rick, let's get your drink and your rant and rave. So my drink is Manhattan adjacent. I'm drinking a Boulevardier, which is a Manhattan, except it has Campari. Adds a little summer twist to it. So yeah, that's my drink. My rave, um, my garage, because I'm bougie and own a, a building, my garage was built in the 50s and came down last week, and now they're rebuilding it. And I just want to rave about all the laborers who come out. They take the cement away. They take my garage away. And then I just sit in my house podcasting and I have a new garage. And I would almost say like magic, except these people are doing it. So my rave is for laborers everywhere who are working to keep us going. My rant is 
people. Um, <laughs> this is a perfect introduction to Rick Lee. <laughs> but, but in a very specific way. I feel like stuff is opening too fast and there are too many people around all of a sudden. And, and I don't know what to do with them. I don't know how to talk to them. I feel like I'm dazed and confused all the time. So my rant is people. Like some of you just stay inside for a little while. Or let's take turns. Like, let's just come out one at a time. Shifts. Yeah. We'll function in society in shifts. Yeah, exactly. Some of you are still on the JV team. You don't get to play yet. You get benched in life. Yeah. All right, you guys. Well, I saw behind the bar that they have Basil Hayden. So I'm going to start Ooh. off this season clean. I'm going to have a nice Basil Hayden, two fingers, neat. And I, this week, have a totally unsurprising rant. It is freaking hot outside. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. It's like a swampland out there. And we can't console ourselves any longer saying, well, this is an unusual summer. It's only going to get worse every summer here out. And so I'm just not enjoying the heat. My rave, and I'm a little bit late to this, is that I recently finished season one of this Apple TV series called Ted Lasso, oh, yeah. uh, which is yeah. about a American football coach that gets hired to coach a soccer team in London. It is some of the smartest TV writing that I have seen in a long time. The second season is about to come out soon. As a matter of fact, it will be out by the time you are hearing this episode. But I can't recommend it highly enough. Ted Lasso, it's on Apple TV. I've heard great things about that. Yeah, it is fantastic. I think that it does a really good job at what I would call woke humor, which can sometimes hit wrong and can sometimes be a little too precious. <laughs> but it does, it does it really, really, really well. All right, so let's jump in. Our topic today is called Private Cities, and Rick is going to start us off here on episode one of season two in the hot seat and kind of guide our conversation through it. So Rick, what do you want to talk about today? Yeah, so I teach this class at DePaul for our first year students, and, and we use the city as our classroom, and the instructor comes up with a topic, and the idea is take the kids out use the city, use the resources of the city. And so mine is a lot about the infrastructure and design of the city. And I really like this essay by Iris Marion Young in which she talks about cities as kind of model democracies. And she's incredibly optimistic. She's not saying cities are democratic, but they have the qualities that would make for a robust, vibrant democracy. But lately I've been thinking like, there are so many signs of the non-democratic city. And to take this even out of urban spaces, there are so many signs in which our public spaces are not for every public. And so I then started thinking like, those signs must be material. And so how do we read those signs? Like, how do we right. know this neighborhood isn't for me? Or how do I know not to cross over there? So one of the things I, I started thinking about, and one of my friends, Lee, you know him well, Chris Long, he talks about digital resources in terms of affordance and denial. And so then I yeah. started thinking about, wow, there's a lot of ways in which we know to what we have access and where we're denied access. And, and so I started trying to come up with examples of how do we know this space is not for a certain public. Eventually, where I'd like to get your thoughts, but this is down the line, 
is that in a way this makes all of our public spaces, if they're not for all publics, then they are really private in a way. And, and so that's what got me to start thinking about cities as private. Part of my work this past couple of years are looking at questions of policy and citizenship determined through policy. And one of the factors or one of the areas of that has been looking at housing policy. So thinking about segregation, thinking about the very intentional and conscious way in which cities were designed in order to marginalize particular groups, or what were the laws that were created to not explicitly say, hey, you're black or brown, you can't live here, but we're going to create conditions that we know make it difficult for you to live here. A really great book for this is Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. So what you're talking about really resonates in terms of what I've been working on, but also it really resonates in terms of my own background and upbringing. Yeah, I think that that focus on infrastructure is really important. I know that Memphis, like a lot of southern cities, is a geographically large and sprawling place with absolutely insufficient public transportation infrastructure. I think about not only just how long it takes people who rely on public transportation just to get to and from work, which can sometimes add another hour or two hours or more to their day, unpaid hours, by the way, to their day, but also, you know, it's it's not particularly reliable and it's expensive or it's more expensive than it should be. Recently, I've been noticing how the bus stops are arranged. And I know that both of you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about park benches and how you can't lay down on park benches because they build these bars into the middle of the benches so that no one can lay down on them. But I was noticing, because it's very hot outside, how almost none of the bus stops are covered. I mean, it's just standing out there on the street, you know, right by the hot pavement in the glaring sun. And again, with a bus system that does not always run on time, you could be there for hours or if you're changing buses more than an hour. And that's literally dangerous at this time of year. The covered bus stop is a really interesting issue because in Chicago, a lot of our bus stops, not all of them, but a lot are covered. And it happens frequently that a homeless person will use that as shelter. Of course, that's because we won't provide them houses in any other way. And so my feeling is, okay, if we won't provide houses in any other way, take that one as your house. I I wish we could do better for you, but I'm sorry, this is all the city will do for you. So now, in a sense, it's because that space is semi-private or semi-public that it now feels like an occupation for some people, right? So a homeless person Mm -hmm. is sleeping in the bus stop that now is read by other people as, well, that's being occupied, right? And, Mm -hmm. And so there's like a minimal sense of they're trespassing. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking when you said occupation, I'm, I'm, You know, I was thinking, do you mean that there's an actual presence within a space occupied or do you mean that there's an invasion? Yeah. Right. There's like an alien being in this space where they don't belong. Right. It is, of course, important to remember whose interests does it serve to keep the unhoused out of these shelters, even if they're not intended to be shelters. And obviously it serves the interests of the propertyed and the wealthy and the privileged in a society. What's interesting is that 
what gets literally built into the physical world of our cities as so-called solutions are not solutions. It, it might keep a homeless person from sleeping there, but it doesn't do anything about the fact that there are unhoused people in that neighborhood or in that city. And the people whose interests those solutions are serving have no other solutions for the bigger problem. Right. Right. It, it seems to me, you know, going back to your original question, Rick, it seems to me that the city as such has never really been a public entity. That there have been these very subjective, these very private entities or intentions that have driven the construction. Because you say, oh, we need to get into a certain degree of social engineering as we're going to deal with climate change. But there's really always been social engineering taking place within the urban landscape of the United States. I think about there's a great movie called Motherless Brooklyn that has sort of a Robert Moses-like figure set in the 50s and 60s. And it really is about the ways in which Moses is reconstructing New York along racial and class lines with the use of public funds. I try to get my students to always think about who do you think lives around here and how do you know that, right? So give me some concrete material signs. I'm going to bring this right back to my home again. I have a wrought iron gate that was there when I bought the, the place and it goes across the front of my property and a lot of my neighbors also have them. This is a neighborhood that was gentrified some years ago, but it, it was a traditionally Puerto Rican neighborhood, and it's now a mixed community. When I told my neighbor I'm taking down my fence, she's like, oh, why are you doing that? Aren't you afraid? And I said, well, actually, I feel like having the gate is more of a sign of fear than just taking the gate off. Right, right. And there are easy ways around my gate, but the gate marks something to other people. Yeah. It's on the public facing side of my building. And so in a way, I'm adding to the privatization of the neighborhood right. because I'm saying to certain people, get out. This isn't your neighborhood. Don't walk on my street. Where I live here in Overland, Ohio, it's a pretty much, for the most part, a, a gateless city. But, you know, I live with someone who thought about maybe we should get a, a fence or something around our backyard just for the sake of privacy. And I realized in the context of Overland that doing that would suggest something unneighborly, mm -hmm. right? This kind of way of saying we actually don't want sort of access or we don't want to be connected or we don't want you to be able to make easy connection to us. So it, it seems to me like what you're describing is a way in which, and I'm thinking about this through questions of, of citizenship, but it's a way in which sort of you're disrupting what should be a natural community of people in a yeah. very conscious way. I was just trying to think of other examples of actual physical structures that give me an indication what kind of a neighborhood it is. And I do think that fences is one of them. Manicured lawns is one of them. Mm. But I'm also thinking about things like, is there a liquor store in the neighborhood? Mm. Are there non-chain restaurants in the neighborhood? Those sorts of things are real indicators for me. I think also there's a kind of uniformity to certain neighborhoods that suggests in its actual appearance that the neighbors know each other, they're looking out for each other, they're a community. Whereas I think that 
sometimes when you go in neighborhoods and there isn't that uniformity, it, it appears like, I don't know how to finish that thought. No, no. I mean, I'll follow up. I remember living in upstate New York and all of a sudden a pride of place legislation crossed the, the city council's desk. And it was clearly directed towards sort of working class populations who may not have had proper storage or using their yards to hold certain types of objects. So you're talking about neighborhoods that clearly have pride of place, that clearly have certain types of zoning codes, that clearly have certain types of requirements, which could be odious or a burdensome to working class or poor people if they can afford to live there. So in Chicago, there are neighborhoods that they widened the street in order to put planters in the center of it. And so they plant beautiful flowers. But then this leads me to a different point. So during the summer, when there were uprisings and expressions of solidarity, particularly after the murder of George Floyd and so on, a lot of that happened in what we call the Magnificent Mile downtown. And there has always been a heavy show of police force there. But the thing I also noticed is that all of these stores, Nordstrom and so on, they also are heavily armed in terms of their own private security who then came outside. So now you have these planters in the middle, which are signs this is a certain kind of neighborhood. And then this show of both public and private security forces that is saying this is not public. This is not our space. Hey, listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter, at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson. That's at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. I do want to talk about what we've seen in the last couple of years. I mean, I would say maybe even since 2014, when we had our first really public Black Lives Matter movements, this idea of this citizenry taking to the public sphere to gather, to protest, to make demands, but also to be put in real peril by the mechanisms of the state. I will say for myself, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, and I don't even know if this ever existed, but I wish there still were the public square. You know, I mean, the sort of hear ye, hear ye public square. You know, there have been times I've wanted to go out and be like, hear ye, hear ye. (laughs) (laughs) And weirdly, no one gathers to listen to that. (laughs) Let's talk about what we've seen in the last several years with protests. This was something that was really interesting to me. So to go back to our Magnificent Mile, two things occurred to me about that being a location of protest. 
The, the first is that we don't really have a public square like in front of City Hall or in front of police headquarters or, or like the place where you would go to say, hey, fuck you. Well, you would say, hear ye, hear ye, fuck you. Fuck, right. you. fuck, fuck if ye. Fuck, fuck, fuck if ye. you. <laughs> fuck if you. <laughs> 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 or thou fuck if yeah, thou, fuck, like, thou. <laughs> wasn't that in the bible I read that somewhere I think that was Song of Solomon fuck if thou <laughs> so the first thing is like the, we're robbed of the public square where can you go to get attention hey this is where the money is and this is what right. people care about so they don't care about City Hall anymore. They care about money. So let's go where the money is and let's disrupt that. I mean, I'm not saying anyone had this insight or consciousness, but it, it sort of bubbled up. And I, I think in a fairly successful way, although that then immediately pivoted to looting. It's looting. They're looting. Well, I think about this and even before Black Lives Matter, I think about Occupy Wall Street. Mm. Right, that movement. And I agree with you, the the lack of a literal public square, a commons. It feels like that's what we're getting to. We're talking about the, the loss of the civil commons. And I think what these movements have done, whereas private entities have started claiming public space, now we've got the public, literal public, beginning to reclaim private spaces and making them as such. I have a really good example of that, which is going back a couple of years, but it's still happening in some places, but the protests to take down Confederate statues. I know this is not the case, obviously, where you guys are, but it was very prominent protest here in Memphis where we have a few different statues. This was literally an example of the people taking back the common space as common right. and saying this has been made into a space that is not a public space. It's not for everyone. And these have to come down in order for this to be a public space. These statues, memorials are in parks. And so it really is a kind of making common again what should have been common. Right. I, I read a lot of documents from the turn of the, well, now I have to say the turn of the 19th to the 20th century about urban design. And I'm thinking about Daniel Burnham had this plan for Chicago in which he talks very much, Lee, like you did earlier about we need a plaza for citizens to gather, to protest. And I think two things about that. One is that it is clear in his language about this that this commons to, and, and Charles, I really like that. I've been thinking a lot about we need a new commons in a way. But it's clear for him that this commons in the sense of the space is predicated on there's already a constituted we in common, and it's clear who that we is. So in a sense, mm -hmm. he's clearly talking about well-off, working-class, middle-class whites will come together and discuss, oh, isn't it interesting that we're going to have a new water treatment plant? And what he's not talking about is like people coming and saying, screw you, this isn't working for me, right? So it's an interesting way in which his discourse about all of this is already coded as to who the we is that we hold something in common. Yeah, and I think that we need to remain very suspicious of and vigilant against 
these ideas that protests can only happen where they've been permitted to happen, right? right? I think that one of the things that we saw during the Trump presidency, and most famously when Trump tear-gassed these protesters who were in a permitted place protesting where they were told that they could protest and Trump tear gasses them all so he can walk across the street and hold a Bible up and have his picture taken in front of a church. That seems to me to cede too much to the state. And there's no way around it now because the police reaction to protests is so violent and so extreme. And the consequences of even just being arrested at a protest are so much more severe than they used to be. You know, it used to be you get arrested at a protest, you pay a $50 fine and you're out. And that's not a big deal. But now you get arrested at a protest, you could be in jail for a week. Well, I think there are two points. I think, and I agree with you completely, The idea that you have to request a permit to exercise what supposedly is a constitutional right, I think that seeds too much. I mean, it's oxymoronic to ask permission to protest. So that's ridiculous. And it's also ridiculous that you have to ask permission to move into what should have already been established, like your space as a public space. So maybe here I'm too much of a pessimist, but I I worry like we've already ceded too much and we've yet to begin to think of how much has been already ceded. I worry about the possibility of even anything like protest changing anymore. Unfortunately, I think I agree with you. I mean, I was just going to ask you both sort of straight talk what do you do about any of this? Because even if we were to get a group together and say, we're going to protest in this park, we're not going to apply for a permit, we have a constitutional right to do it, that reasonable argument does not stand up well against tear gas, guns, and jail time. Or, you know, there's new laws that have been passed in Florida where if you are driving and you hit someone with your car in a protest, that's no crime. That's in Tennessee. That happened here. Yeah, it's no crime. So basically, the consequences of exercising rights, and right for the people listening, I'm doing this with air quotes, is unaccountable murder. You could get killed by one of these idiots driving their cars into a Black Lives Matter protest, and there's no consequence for them for doing that. Actually, the, the state clearly encourages you to do that. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. I hate to make this constantly about Chicago, and I promise I won't do this all the time, but one of the things I'm really interested in is the first May Day happened in Chicago. One of the leaders of the labor movement at the time, well, there was a a couple, now his name escapes me, Parsons and Lucy Parsons, they came together from Texas. She called herself Mexican, but all the depictions we have of her today, everyone would read her as black. 
No, she was um, definitely... I just wrote on her. So yeah, definitely African-American. And Charles, there's obviously good reason why coming to Chicago, she would call herself Mexican. Right. Do you know her essay for Tramps? No, I just came across a collection of her stuff, but I haven't read that essay as of yet. Her main point here is she's writing to people who are out of work. This is in yet another depression. And so people are out of work and she's like, hey, I know you're depressed and you're about to commit suicide by throwing yourself in the lake. But let me give you another idea. Learn the use of explosives and take the rich people out with you. And- <laughs> She's like, just spitballing here. <laughs> right. but- I'm, just, I'm just off the top of my head. I mean, off the know, top of my head. Yeah. But, but, Let's consider all of our options. Yeah. No, but that idea of like the bomb throwing anarchist of the late 19th, early 20th century, that's not metaphoric. That's literal. Yeah. Like think about how many world leaders were killed by anarchists between 1880 and 1900. Yeah. And by the way, many of them in public spaces. In public spaces. Right. (laughs) So, Rick, you seem to be really focused on protests being at its most effective when it is following the money. Is that a fair? Do you think that's a fair characterization of your position? Yeah. You you know, this uh, you you can't take the marks out of me. So, yes. Yeah. I agree with that. I think certainly. And going back to the example of Occupy Wall Street, I think that that is a fundamental point of of vulnerability for the oligarchs of this society. I think you have to figure out what's most important to them. And I'm thinking about the LBJ quote, once you know what's important to a person, then you have their pecker in your pocket. Well, we know what's important to rich people. And we know what's important to those who serve them, which is the money. So we can think about how do we begin to disrupt financial centers, financial processes, So if we circle this back around to the question of cities, and this is not my position, I'm just kind of putting this out there for both of you to respond to, but it does seem like we're moving in the direction of the healthy city is one that is literally materially destroying the city. (laughs) And that seems a little concerning as a position. Well, okay. So in fairness, <laughs> I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't advocating permanent revolution. But okay. So, I, I mean, this is one moment I think where Iris Marion Young has something to her argument. And a little bit of this goes back, although he has a negative take on it. Georg Zimmel has an essay on urban life called The Metropolis and Mental Life. And he talks about how the sort of commercial relations are impersonal. He thinks that's negative. Iris uh, Marion Young wants to spin that in a more positive direction, that it's this impersonality that allows us to confront one another where our emotions aren't at stake, our well-being isn't at stake, and so on. So I do think the city does have to have commercial well-being, but for everyone. What I'm talking about is how do we get to that place? And then that's where I become pessimistic and say, yeah, maybe we need to knock down a little bit of the material well-being of the city until people are like, wow, you know, a couple of hundred thousand there, a couple of hundred thousand there. Fuck, that's real money. (laughs) Yeah, you titled this episode Private City. Exactly. So your your diagnosis of what is at the core of the illness of cities right now is that they're privatized. Right. Because we have to be able, I assume all three of us would want to be able to imagine a city in which conflict and difference can coexist without it requiring literal destruction of infrastructure in in order for that conflict to be recognized or worked out. The problem is is that we live in these cities where a nonviolent space 
for that sort of difference in conflict to exist has already been privatized. Right. And so it's already in the interest of one of the sides of whatever conflict we're talking about. Yeah. And Lee, in an interesting way, that pivots to one of the other topics. And now, like, I'll just put my foot in my mouth because this is right in Charles' wheelhouse. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which many neighborhoods in, in Chicago and they're primarily African-American neighborhoods that are on the edge of either mixed neighborhoods or white neighborhoods, that they're actually losing housing density. I hate to call this privatization because like the larger apartment buildings obviously were private, but they're being gotten rid of in the name of single family houses. I, I, I still want to call it a kind of privatization, but this population density is making more and more of the available square feet on the ground less of that becomes publicly available. That's actually interesting because the exact opposite thing is happening in a lot of neighborhoods in Memphis, which is that lower middle class to lower class neighborhoods are being swooped in upon by investors who build these multi-unit apartments, condos that are out of the price range of any of the people who used to live there. So the density is increasing but the demographics of the neighborhoods are completely changing. They're getting wealthier and wider. So explain this again, Rick, because I know what Lee's talking about. I've seen it, you know, I've spent a lot of time in New York City and I've seen Brooklyn change over 25 years from the mid 90s to wh where it is now. So explain more about what you're describing happening in Chicago. I'll give a concrete example. So we have a neighborhood called Garfield Park. Uh, it surrounds a park called Garfield Park. That's um, clever. <laughs> yeah. And it is now a predominantly African-American neighborhood and has been going back to the late 50s, early 60s. Some single family houses, but then we have in Chicago, we call them two flats or three flats. And they're low level, two or three story buildings that have more than one apartment in it. And each floor usually services one family. Exactly, exactly. And so the first stage is that if the bones are good, those are being straight up converted as they stand to single family houses. Mm. Um, so now if it's a two flat, now an apartment unit is off the market. And if it's a three flat, now two of them are off the market. And then there are some larger structures which what developers will do in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood is take down maybe a, a building that has 18 or 20, 25 units in it, take it down and build three single family houses in the space of what used to be, because now they can turn those into multi-million dollar properties. Right, right, right. Yeah. I see what you're talking yeah. about. Right. Because I know and you know, I have family in Chicago. And I've noticed the ways in which more and more certainly middle class, upper middle class African-Americans are, are leaving the city. Yeah. And they're moving out into the suburbs to have their own McMansions. And you're right, that de-densification is happening, but there's not accompanying real physical transformation, right? The same old buildings remain there, just sort of de-densified populations, fewer people. I mean, it's interesting. It seems like a very short-sighted plan because I think most people agree that or at least the numbers seem to suggest that by 2050, something like three quarters of the American population will live in cities, 73%, yeah. right. I think. And that cities will become more dense. 
they'll have to become more sustainable and smarter in the technological sense. Sure. It is interesting to see this move right now. Well, and at the same time where there is a diminishment of public housing. Right. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems to me, and, and this may be a pivot, but it seems to me that what we really have to redefine is what we mean by development. Mm. And it seems that all of these sort of massive housing changes, these massive infrastructure changes are always under sort of the umbrella of, well, this is development, right? right? This is going to be beneficial to the city. This is going to transform the city. And once we get a handle on that, then we can begin to project and think about what development means in terms of a commons, in terms of a revived citizenship, in terms of a mass public investment and participation in the life of the city and in the space of the city. It seems to me that if we're going to pinpoint a problem, if we're going to sort of identify some type of tension, that we have to begin to think about, well, how do we resolve this? How do we evolve beyond this? How do we transform it? So, you know, let's think about ways that we can turn a city into or regain a sense of the commons, regain a sense of the public nature of the city. I was thinking about this book by Diane Feinstein called The Just City. Mm-hmm. So what would a just city look like? Wisdom and power and virtue would exist in the guardians. <laughs> just kidding. Hey, don't get me started. I got a basket full of Thrasymachus jokes. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, liquor would come out of the water fountains. Right? Oh, my God. I mean, my first concrete suggestion for regaining the commons for the demos, but also for thinking about how to make cities more just is public transportation infrastructure and facilities to mitigate the situation of the unhoused. Those are things that I think we absolutely have to have. They are things that could easily be paid for obviously by taxing the rich, which is my going to be my answer for everything, but also pulling back on some of the tax benefits or the tax credits that cities give to private corporations that are coming in and privatizing the city in exactly the way that Rick was describing earlier. But public transportation, absolutely. I think any city more than 400,000 people should have an easy, affordable, and like, I don't know what the other word is. Easy, affordable, accessible, and accessible, and, and, and f- accessible and functional public transportation system. Sure. Yeah. Oh, let me make a correction. It's, it's And sustainable. And sustainable. It's, it's Susan Feinstein. I agree with that. I would add to that. I think there actually needs to be much more literal common space. And not just parks, but squares. There just need to be places where people can gather together and engage one another. And there's no fee, there's no taxation to be able to sit out comfortably within a grove. And now going back to ancient Athens. But I think that's really important because I think part of what the city has done, it's kind of this divide and conquer. People become anonymous. People become strangers and alien to each other. And who is able to benefit but those who seek to monetize and expand private ownership and interest over this space? I really think that people just being able to see their neighbors yeah. right, is a huge part of it. Yeah. yeah. And so, Charles, you're familiar with Chicago's racial landscape. It struck me once when I was in college, I, I was a, a secretary at a law firm. And the L line I was taking to go home goes north and west. And on the other side of the tracks, 
those platforms go south and west. And there was not a single white face on the other side of the platform. Sure. Yet there's no public space downtown or there wasn't at the time. Right. There was no public space downtown for all of us to come downtown and just hang out together. Not even necessarily talking, but like hang out next to each other. Like yeah. you know, eating your sandwich there. I'm eating yeah. my sandwich here and, and maybe a conversation happens. I'm, I'm with Charles on this to have a public space without markers of access and denial. So that means not a visible show of force, no security, visible security. And I, I, I think also I'm, I'm with Lee 4000 percent that public transportation is really key. And it has to be public transportation that allows you not just to go to the central business district, but right, to go right. among other neighborhoods with ease at low cost and it's accessible and sustainable. Can I add another thing? No. I also think pu- the pu- <laughs> you're cut off. You're done. <laughs> hey, you guys are still on probation. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But in all seriousness, I do think that cities need more art and less police everywhere. I want to shout out one of my colleagues who runs an organization called Paint Memphis, which has taken over a lot of public spaces, underpasses of bridges, walls, and basically employed graffiti artists. I mean, I don't think all of them would call themselves graffiti artists. Some of them would call themselves painters. But there is a massive amount of public art in Memphis. I know this is also true in Chicago. I think that that is what makes the difference between a space and a place. It's a kind of event that happens when you see these things and you think about where you are and what that means to be able to walk out and see public art spaces, whether it's sculptures or paintings or even graffiti. I think that that is a existential change that needs to happen in the way that people experience cities. But I think in the exact opposite direction, not seeing so many police. I just don't need to see police everywhere. And often, just the police present, even if it's, you know, the friendly ones, the so-called good ones, just having them there encourages us to revert back to that interaction with our fellow citizens that is characterized by suspicion and solipsism and fear. And so I think we've got to get the police out of the public sphere and more art into the public sphere. Yeah, yeah officer I, friendly is still an officer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Still has a gun. Still has a gun. Right. Yeah. Officer Friendly can still shoot you. Officer Friendly has qualified immunity. Let's just yeah. let's keep that yeah. in mind. Right. And and Lee, I think that's a really nice way to materially pinpoint access and denial because public art is inviting, right? So come and look at it. You need to get close, come over here, gather. Whereas mm-hmm. police, in, in the eyes of the police, we're all potential violators, right? right. Mm-hmm. So, um, well... Frankly, less so me. But yeah, so, so, some more than others, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, all pigs are equal. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> so, all the pigs have guns. No, the, kid, the, the millennials... Welcome back to season two. <laughs> the millennials don't use the word pigs anymore, do they? No, they use bastards. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey listeners, it's a new season of Hotel Bar Sessions. We've got new co-hosts, and so we thought we'd introduce a new regular segment into our episodes this season. We're calling it Rando Facts. We basically consider this a public service because who doesn't need to shore up their cocktail party conversation reserve? Today's random fact is there is an Icelandic phallological museum in Reykjavik, Iceland. Here's a random fact. We are closer in time to Thomas Aquinas than Thomas Aquinas was to Augustine, and they were both medieval. You guys, the heads on Easter Island have bodies. So these iconic stone heads that protrude from the ground on Easter Island are familiar to most people, but most people don't realize what lives beneath the surface. It turns out that in the 2010s, archaeologists studying the hundreds of stone statues on the Pacific Island excavated two of the figures, revealing full torsos, which measure as high as 33 feet. You guys, the Easter Island heads are not just heads. We've been talking a lot about, in all of our ideal cities, we wanted these public spaces, plazas or piazzas, as they call them in Italy. And we mentioned parks uh, uh, a few times. And I was wondering what role do parks play, public parks, obviously, play in either our ideal cities or in this privatization of cities that I've been talking about. And I'll, I'll just start this off by saying that In this plan I mentioned, Daniel Burnham's plan for Chicago, he called for a tremendous amount of park space. And one of the reasons, and he's explicit about this, this doesn't take like some hermeneutic genius to uncover it, is that for the working class, their working lives is so miserable that they need this open space free from any reminder of work to regenerate because otherwise they're going to cause trouble in the workplace. Yeah. I want to say that I think that parks are hugely important. I wish that parks weren't designed for the fitness cult Mm. part of the citizenry. I wish more parks had more barbecue grills, more cornhole, you know, (laughs) setups, more things that you could do and you could engage in. But I do think that a lot of public parks are either empty because they're just not accessible wherever they're placed, or there's just nothing to do there, or they've been overtaken by the fitness cult. Oh, certainly the sort of subtle body shaming, right? I just want to sit on a bench, man. I don't need the five-station workout unit like right. <laughs> right, right over there telling me that I should be doing something besides sitting my ass on a bench. Yeah. But I know that Rick had mentioned, I think, to me that they removed a lot of the, for example, grills in yeah. public parks. That seems to me, obviously, a racialized decision. Oh, well, I, well, I think Am about I... the woman in Oakland. Um, was this barbecue... Oh, no, barbecue Karen. Yeah, barbecue Karen, right? So that's, right, that's, and I suspect that part of the reason for doing that is to remove a possible site of contestation and conflict between populations, right? So let's, let's have a public park, but let's really kind of lower the amount of black people or working class people that we want there because we don't want the upper classes who may visit the park to feel uncomfortable or come into some sort of conflict. So it's like this paradoxical sort of possibility there, right? We want it public, but we don't want it 
too public. Right. Right. We want it comfortable, but we don't want it too comfortable. Yeah, we want it public. We want you to feel like it's private. Uh, And I think that that is one of the things that's missing from parks today. I remember when I was a kid and we would go like grill out in the park. You know, they'd have those big gazebo type things that had sort of family style tables. And there would be lots of other families doing it. And you would have to talk to them and figure out how you're going to share space. That is not my experience of going to parks now. My experience of going to parks now is that there's certain kinds of people who can go to a park and treat it as if it's their private park. And there's nothing in the design of the park that would betray that it's not their private park. Right. I have one of the hugest parks in, in the city right near me. One of the hugest, that's, I'm sorry, one of the largest um, <laughs> parks um, in the city. Uh, and Rick, I was judging you. I, I know, I know. Quietly, I was, I was judging you. I didn't see you knitting, though. Um, <laughs> so Rick thinks all knitters are judging. It's passive aggressive. Rick has a theory of passive aggressive knitting. <laughs> I don't think it's a theory. Well, if you'd stop peeing in the park in front of the knitters, they wouldn't judge you. How big is your bladder, man? You can hold it. Millennium Park has public restrooms. I've seen them. They got porta potties. Come on, man. That's not as fun, Charles, and you know it. Um, well, that, that actually is amazingly convenient. It's just so convenient. Okay, we're, we're off on a tangent. Here we go. So back to your um, point about... So one reason to grill in the park is because you can't afford a grill at home or you can, but maybe your space is not owned by you. And so your landlord says no grills on the deck or no, you can't use the backyard or whatever. And so one of the nice, maybe this goes back to our ideal, but wouldn't it be nice to have public spaces in which people can do the things they want to do with other people together. Mm -hmm. The place you live is not big enough to have the party you want to have. Oh, let's go to the park. And so now the grills are gone and it's, I mean, luckily they don't enforce it here so much, but they don't even want you to bring your own grill. And people are putting up their own gazebos, temporary canopies. So you have to construct that now all on your own where that space used to be provided by the city or by the park district. I I think, Charles, you're exactly right that there is a way in which in multiracial or multi-class neighborhoods where this contestation might happen, there are lots of signs that this is made more for us. And Lee, I think you're right. Fitness is one of them. So the Mm -hmm. more there's fitness equipment, the more it's the case that this is not for working class. This is not for African-Americans. This is not for the Puerto Ricans who live in my neighborhood. It didn't exist here in this neighborhood before white people did. You were thinking exactly what I was thinking, which is that there's something just about the public bearing the cost of providing services or opportunities that people's sort of private lives bump up against. I, th- I think there's something real about that, right? If you live in an apartment building, where are you going to grill? Right. Right. Where are you going to have a picnic? Where are you going to have a party? Where are you, ge- you going to have a family reunion? Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. there's something just about the municipality or the city saying, but this is where we are truly your commons. That your celebration is our celebration. 
your sort of leisure is our leisure, and it's a part of what we expect and what we will support in terms of your citizenship and your residence. Yeah. It's our commitment to you. So now we're kind of, and this is, you know, dribbling into social contract theory a little bit. Yes, I mean, partly it is, but there's an aspect of this that even if I'm not going to engage, you know, so someone's throwing a, a family reunion or other celebrations, at least that if it's happening where I'm exposed to it, I'm now exposed to something that I'm not celebrating. It, it's not something I've done. And it makes the life of all of us together that much more enjoyable. You know, joy is not like water. Like if you drink a little joy, I don't go thirsty. You know, <laughs> joy is not like last call at the bar where like I'm going to knock you down to get my joy before you do. So why don't why not just open the park and we're all having joy? Give me a glass of joy and a bump. <laughs> <laughs> But it does kind of bring up certain questions, though, and I like where this conversation is going. I like the idea of this, but I kind of feel like it's still a little, you know, romantic or idealistic because yeah. there's a lot of stuff that people do in public spaces. You're like, man, I really do I have to be exposed to this. So there becomes the question, well, what are the limits to that? Sure. To what degree am I allowed to cultivate my own sense of peace? Right. 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 Separate from somebody else's exuberance of joy. Yeah. Yeah, but it also, many of us don't, because we never encounter those moments where we're like, I'm uncomfortable with this, or I don't know how to negotiate my space and the things I do in my space with this adjacent space and the things these other people are doing in this adjacent space, either because I don't like it and maybe for good reasons, or because I just, I'm never around it. I just don't know. But the good thing is that we actually have to figure that out. You know, it's like, I've got to learn how to not call the police when I'm right. uncomfortable. Okay, I personally don't, have, I never call the police, but Karens have to learn to not call the police <laughs> or to get in a fight or to tell people what they can and can't do or the alternative and equally possible solution is that you have to realize, no, this is a time when I'm like, that's not appropriate. I will say that I really do love encountering things that I otherwise might not have ever encountered in public spaces. I've never myself been to a quinceanera, but I've seen like 10 of yeah. them in the park that's close to my house. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to go. <laughs> and I get, you know, I'm not invited. I don't know any of these people, but I'm just going to sit here right on the edge of it because it looks it's like so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, and when they happen in the park, sometimes there are four-year-old boys in tuxedos. And, you know, how could you not love, like, a four-year-old in a tuxedo? Seriously. Come on. <laughs> Seriously. No, and I think, and I like your point, Lee, because I think that also part of being a part of the commons is developing those habits of maturation and learning how right. to negotiate, navigate, compromise, accept, and embrace the things that your neighbor is doing. And you're right. The police become a mechanism by which people can limit their ability to grow. Hmm. That is actually a fantastic segue, Charles, because it turns out that that idea of maturing in the commons as a citizen is going to be our next uh, podcast episode topic. So it looks like we are getting last call from the bartender here today. But before we roll out for this first episode, Charles, why don't you just give us a brief teaser for what we're going to talk about in the next episode? We're going to be talking about citizenship. We're going to be talking about questions of social contract theory. What are the obligations? How do we understand? What are the measures and indicators of an authentic, healthy, vested, and embraced citizenship? And what does it look like when 
that fails, when those indicators aren't there, when the, the practice and the process of citizenship is not vested, is inauthentic, and is actually detrimental. So that's what we're going to be talking about, citizenship. And it will be an intervention into Lee's secret Rawlsianism. <laughs> uh, y'all, I try. I'm taking pills. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> I, 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 and yet still, every now and then, I'm out there, hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> well, Rick, this was a great topic. Yeah. And I want to say again that I am so super glad to have you both as co-hosts this season. I'm excited about everything that we're going to be doing. And I can't wait to see you next time. All right. This was great. Bye.